a piece to start that I think is like a, a very distinctive with white feminism is that white feminism has often started with, you know, a very particular, say, like woman in your community, right, who has, and community can be pr- proverbial at this point. I mean, it can be like your Instagram feed, as you just said, who has, you know, quote unquote, made it, whatever that means. She's ascended classes. She has, you know, made a certain amount of money. She's achieved a certain job. She's moved to this particular house. She has, you know, a very particular partner. She has children if she wants them. And then everybody else in the community aspiring to be like her. That's white feminism. Many of these other movements, right? It's about everybody having access to a certain thing, not mimicking the person who has ascended in the structure. So I think that's important to keep in mind is not necessarily looking at yourself. What can I do differently? How should my you know, life or my patterns or change? How should this structure change for not just you, but, you know, people who share the same challenges that you have. Hello, everybody. This is Holly Whitaker, and you're listening to Quitted, which is a podcast about quitting. And today it's just me by myself in this intro. Emily is no joke in the Sahara with some COVID. And so she's not here for the intro. She also was not here for this interview. She'd been in Poland and came back and this was right after that. And so I did this interview by myself. So I'm going to just jump right into a little bit about this before the episode. This is an interview that I did with Koa Beck on her book, White Feminism. And Koa's book came out right around the time in 2021 where I was, um, where I'd kind of been spit out of a company that I'd founded. And I don't know if you know my history or how much you've listened to my story, but I founded a company that was um, on the idea of providing a more holistic and accessible path to recovery from addiction, raised you know, $25 million. And right around the time that I read this book, I had kind of fallen out the other side of it. And I hate using the word brutal because it's kind of excessive, but it it felt at the time of reading this book that I'd been beaten up quite a bit. And I think was in pretty severe disillusionment. And also just a lot of confusion. You know, I'd done all these things. I had the right intention. And I had done very well, statistically speaking, as a woman. Um, statistically speaking, as anybody. Um, I'd done really well. I'd grown the company pretty fast. And, you know, there was a playbook that I followed. And I think that by the time that I read Koa's book, it was one of those bombs that came to me in that time that helped me to make sense of why so much felt so painful and really helped me to understand the inherent limitations of of capitalism and, and furthering um collective well-being and social justice movements. So 
Anyway, I this was an important book for me that has really kept me thinking about how we in capitalism and as consumers how we divest from systems that are killing us, right? And I think that like when you look at what has happened over the past few years and where we are now and the total shift and almost like this acceleration of insanity, right? Like I'm saying this on a day after Elon Musk bought Twitter, you know, and took it private and like this shit's fucking bonkers. Like we're living in a, a crazy fucking time, right? And I think that as we move through the other side of the pandemic that is still going on, as we move through, you know, rapidly changing times that require us to make really hard choices about where we spend our time or where we spend our money. And really, you know, for me personally, this is a time of reckoning, but it's also a time of of reassessment and a time of thinking about how far can I push my own sacrifices? How far can I push myself to live in integrity, but also to live a more joyful existence, not falling prey to the ideas that I have for so many years about how much, uh, how many Instagram followers I have to have, or how much money I have to make, or how much influence I have to have, or, you know, the ideas of, of, that I've fully bought into for so many years. A book like this, right, to me is the essence of the type of discourse we need to be having when we're talking about quitting, when we're talking about shifting, you know, not just our own individual circumstances for a short period of time, not just about changing a job, not just about leaving a partnership, not just about leaving a city or leaving a country or, you know, like not buying shit from Amazon or whatever it is that is a shift for us as a result of, you know, being in really, really rapidly changing times. But I think how we fundamentally change as a collective, right? How do we leave a better future for our kids? um grandkids um how how do we in this situation that we're in right now at this time that we're in operate on a core level in a different way um because we are being asked that right now so anyway i hope that's not too heady this is what happens when i get left alone but i i i can't be more excited to share koa um, and this interview. And also I urge you to purchase her book, White Feminism, and to follow her. And um, she's just a delightful and like lovely human being, extremely smart. And this book is an incredibly, I think like it, it just, it shifted things in me. And the thing that I, I hope you get, and you'll probably get from this interview, but you'll definitely get from this book. And it's just that this is somebody that isn't just talking the talk, but she's really like walking the walk. I just couldn't be more of a fan of her. So here is our interview on Koa's book, White Feminism. Before you go anywhere, please consider that Quitted is a self-funded podcast. This is made possible 
by Ems in my time and Adam's time and Kathleen's time. Um, it's made possible by our own financial resources and then it's made possible by our Patreon community. If you like this podcast and you want to keep hearing this podcast, um, there's a couple ways you can support us. You can right now just pause it and like us, rate us, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also rate us and like us, I think, on almost all of your apps. Download this, keep us, you know, subscribe to, um, or you can also go to patreon.com forward slash quitted and you can financially and directly support this show. Koa, thank you so much for being here today, Koa Beck, and having this conversation. I have been uh, a huge fan of yours since I don't even know how I found your book. Maybe it was um, uh, Museum Mammy. Oh, Kimberly Drew. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think that's how I found it. I found it. I read it at a really pivotal time. And we'll we'll kind of get into that in a little bit. But part of this too, and what we'll get into is I feel like everyone should read your book. It was one of the most important books that I read in 2021, if only because it really mirrored a lot of my own experience. And so I just, first of all, thank you for the sacrifices that you made to bring this book into the world. Well, thank you for all those effusive comments and thank you for inviting me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the first thing I want to get into is this, and this is a podcast about quitting. And today we're going to talk about, you know, kind of like how you have opted out, right? And actually made personal sacrifices to change the system. And I think that's part of the first piece that I want to talk about. So you were you worked your ass off, I'm assuming, to become, you know, you worked at Marie Claire and you worked at Vogue and you worked at, you were, I think, a senior editor at Jezebel. Is it a senior editor at Jezebel? I was the editor in chief of Jezebel. Editor yeah. in chief. Basically. <laughs> at Jezebel. Yeah. And you quit your job mm-hmm. and I'm assuming took a huge pay cut. You're like, I mean, that's kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, 10 years in media, top of the, mm-hmm. your game and probably landed your dream job. And Jezebel is pretty radical, you know, mm-hmm. so to speak, within the space of, you know, women's mags. So I guess, can you talk just a little bit about that? Like, was that an easy, like, I want to get into the why in a minute, but I think the first is like, was that really easy to take a pay cut like that or walk away from a job like that? Actually, yes, it was. And I'll go into some, you know, nuances as to why it was. Um, but yeah, to your to your summary, I uh, held senior leaderships in uh, mainstream women's media for a really long time. I was a reporter and journalist and editor for 10 years. I worked, you know, New York media hours, <laughs> which yeah. are very punishing. I worked a lot through my 20s in, you know, this very like white collar corporate space. I got to publish a lot of stories um, that otherwise, you know, I don't think could have reached the readership um, that they ultimately did, you know, had I not taken those roles and been in those chairs and really pushed for narratives. But I also think, you know, per my book, it also literally put me in the room with white feminism and gave me a very particular understanding of white feminism institutionally, but also just how it works in real time. And I go into a lot of detail in the book, 
you know, about that in terms of my career and, you know, being at these meetings where everyone around the table identifies as a feminist and uses language like that to describe both themselves and their politics. And yet when it comes to producing feminist stories or exploring, you know, gender oppression, which are roles I was literally hired for in terms of my background, I started to realize that it was, you know, very only this very particular type of feminism that was willing to be explored. And so women who were um, not able-bodied, women who were not thin, women who were, you know, not white or white aspiring, women who were not um, hetero, women who are not cis are not, you know, a part of this particular ideology. In terms of quitting my job, I always wanted to publish a book, always, always, always. Um, when I was in newsrooms and writing and um, working, you know, very punishing schedules and like trying to, again, cover so much and get so much done with like increasingly limited resources. And this has been documented a lot <laughs> with um, the slashes, you know, that have come to newsrooms and layoffs and stuff like that. I always wanted to write a book and that was always a big professional goal of mine. And a lot of my moves through media were, you know, both very short term and long term and that I wanted to be paid professionally to write. I wanted health insurance. I wanted access to these big platforms um, to be able to report and commission stories that I thought should exist and people should be reading. But I was also always looking for a way out. Um, and I intuited that a book would be my out. My last role that I had when I was EIC of Jezebel, you know, there really isn't anywhere to go after that. And I think it's important to like recognize that, especially in these very aggressively corporate ladders and, and structures where the bottom line, especially like personally, what you're indoctrinated with is always to like ascend, ascend, ascend. And when I was at Jezebel, yeah. there, there really wasn't anywhere else to go. I didn't want to run a, you know, a different women's <laughs> website. Yeah. And so I um, had been researching and putting together the proposal for white feminism for a little bit. And I did apply to a fellowship at the Harvard Kennedy School, um, which if anyone listening is, you know, working on projects or researching or trying to write, I highly recommend trying to get institutional support, especially if, you know, you do have a job that takes up a lot of your time and, and requires a lot to maintain, or, you know, you have kids and a family. Getting a fellowship like I did fundamentally changed my ability to do this book the way that I could, especially when the book was purchased. I knew two things right away, one being that I would never have a leadership position in media ever again <laughs> um, if I was going to say what I was going to say. I was going to lose all job prospects in that field, <laughs> which I was okay with. You know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to exit. And I felt an immense responsibility. Like you name to name. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important that I do. And that, you know, while I wouldn't say the tone of the book is like vindictive, I think it's really important to trace the parameters of white feminism and its limitations through stories that you recognize and people you recognize and things that you have witnessed in the culture and that you can call yeah. to mind. And so, you know, leaving media wasn't uh, an identity crisis for me at all. And in, in the way that, you know, a lot of people I came up with in peers you know, being a journalist in a newsroom really was a big part of who they are. And again, I think this speaks to how identities can really get blurred a lot in like aggressively white collar settings, you know, especially in a 
city like New York, where you, you know, are your job and your job is you. And that's, you know, very cultural. And, you know, even though I've like been through those environments, I've never identified with that. I'm always a writer, you know, whether I'm in a newsroom or I'm in my home office or I'm in my bed or writing at my kitchen table. It's just not dependent on a brand and it never has been. In terms of the, the pay cut, yes, that was immense. I went from being, you know, the EIC of a really well-known women's brand to, you know, literally deleting Slack off my phone and and moving to Cambridge to take this fellowship and, you know, had my phone off and was walking into libraries for six to eight hours a day and pulling research and archival texts. And something that I've maintained a lot, especially in my own, like, upward career mobility, which I write about in white feminism, is that I have always been a very aggressive saver where I could be. And so even when I did, you know, was promoted and and would make dramatically more money than I did in a previous role, I would still try and live, you know, in a budgetary sense, as if I had never gotten that promotion, I wouldn't get a promotion and then like, all of a sudden have like a fancy new apartment. <laughs> um, oh, you're such a rare, beautiful exception. I I did. <laughs> no, and I think I think that there's a lot yeah. of especially in, in the United States and especially if you're yeah. like a you know a, a woman, right, who has like yeah. ascended to a certain level of visibility, especially in, in a corporate space, that's the message you get is like, oh, you're you're like a fancy woman now. <laughs> and so everything around you needs to like reflect that identity. That's right. That's right. And I think like when you are like as a CEO, right, I felt like extremely embarrassed if I, you know, like didn't have certain things, right? Like the kind of bag I wore, if I wasn't getting my hair done or the shitty apartment I lived in or whatever it was, it was just, it had to match and you had to keep it up. And I think that, yeah, that's a whole thing. But so I want to slow it down just a little bit because I think this is really interesting. So you're biracial, you're queer, and Mm -hmm. you also, pre-you in in white feminism, you can straight pass, you can, you know, essentially white pass Mm -hmm. to an extent. And I think that as I was reading, because there's not there is enough personal narrative in there and it is not vindictive. I think it's like relieving because you're talking about things that we all know and you're not talking about in this really coded way where we have to like guess what you mean. I think you're very straightforward. And I also think you're really fair to the people that, you know, or the, or the organizations that you talk about. But I think that what I was getting as I was reading it and the thing that I want to know is, you know, this has always been your reality, right? And also I wonder, like, especially as you're working in these institutions, you know, around the time of like social media or girl boss or, you know, feminism as a hashtag or like the future is female and all these things that you touch upon in your book. But as it becomes more and more entrenched and obvious and more and more white women are identifying as feminists, but also like a specific kind of feminist where the issues that they want to cover are typically reproductive or like typically like white upper class issues. I'm just wondering, like, was it a slow boil? Like, was it always obvious for you? Or is it becoming like over 10 years as this is kind of amplifying? I just like wonder if you always had your notebook. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and this was all (laughs) like you, like if this was like always like, here's this thing and here's this thing, or if it was just a thing that over time became, because it feels a little choke. I imagine it felt like choking to be in an environment Mm -hmm. like that. Like you have this one scene where you're talking about one of your bosses coming up and there is a cover of Nicki Minaj and your white boss says, 
I love it when they make trashy people look good, which is just like, I mean, it's all, it's all of the isms, right? It's just a, it's Mm -hmm. a horrible thing to say that is erasing an identity as trashy. Can you just kind of talk about like that experience over time? And if it got to like a, like, how did you manage that? Was it always that way to you or did it become more obvious? I would say it was both a slow burn and immediate. I walked into women's media, mainstream women's media, I'll say, because I think that's a big differentiating factor with a fair amount of like, okay, this is like a really white middle-class environment with like a lot of, you know, heterosexual women. And as I get into in the book, I'm a graduate of a women's college and it's a very specific environment, especially to walk into at 18 and in terms of like the text I was reading and the the um, gender consciousness that, you know, was imbued into me at a very young age and the mandates of my professors and just the environment of being in a space of all women. I get into in the book some complicated politics with that. But in terms of me, you know, reading, right, like Judith Butler and Bell Hooks, you know, on my professor's floor as a teenager, I definitely walked into mainstream women's media with a different perspective, without a doubt. Having said that, though, and I do get into this in the book, when I first started moving in these like bigger newsrooms, you know, where there was a lot of brand recognition and definitely a lot more power, I used to think comments kind of like the Nicki Minaj one you cited were gaffes or like slip ups or like, okay, you know, this is somebody who grew up in like, you know, a a gated community or like a really well-off suburb who has never, you know, been slighted because of necessarily how they present or like gender identity or because they're poor or, or, you know, because they're not skinny or, or any of these things, this person just doesn't know. And that's what I told myself for many years is like, they just don't know. And if they knew they wouldn't make comments like that, they wouldn't, you know, come up to me and ask me if I like share clothes with my wife, like they wouldn't, Mm. say things like that. They wouldn't make comments about, you know, black women being quote unquote ghetto. What I did realize over time that was more of a slow burn, which eventually led to the book is like, oh no, these are not gas. This is an ideology. This is an entire way of, of thinking, of conceiving of and envisioning gender equality, of thinking about feminism that is entirely different from what I'm thinking about at my desk and what I'm sure, you know, some other women and non-binary people are thinking about either in this immediate room or elsewhere. And that was more of the slow burn of like, this is an entire strategy and practice. Yeah. So can you talk about that? Cause that is like that strategy and practice is what the title of the book is about, right? Like it's, it's white feminism. Can you just define really quick what white feminism is versus what being a feminist that happens to be white is? Sure. Happily. So I define (laughs) white feminism very early in my book in the introduction as a very specific ideology and practice towards achieving gender equality that pulls considerably from imperialism, from capitalism, from labor exploitation, and especially white 
supremacy. And so what I mean when I say that is that marginalized genders under the practice of white feminism are asked to oftentimes aspire to be seen. White feminism doesn't meet marginalized genders where they are in terms of, you know, say like, you know, being a cleaning woman in an office building, right, who like doesn't, you know, have access to perhaps quality healthcare or who doesn't make, you know, a an appropriate wage to support her family. If that cleaning woman wants to say like start a newsletter, (laughs) um, white feminism will see her. Um, But again, she has to aspire to be seen. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think like the the main focus that, you know, I want to use our time today um, because I think there's a lot of different ways and I'll plug Ko's book like a hundred times, uh, hopefully during this podcast, it's really good. And I hope everyone reads it and goes into a lot of things. Like it's sweeping. It's a sweeping history really of like how this has always been, like how feminist movements or at least popularized feminist movements have always really favored white women and, and white women's issues and, or at least like upper class issues and kind of deny like the lived existence of all women. And it goes into really specifically, the whole second part of the book is called white feminism. You know, it goes corporate. I can't remember the exact, what is the exact title of it? I don't have it written down in front Um, of me. From the suffragettes to influencers and who they leave behind. Yes. (laughs) Oh, it's white feminism TM trademark. Um, (laughs) And this is where it got me. (laughs) It got me because I read this when I was in the middle of, you know, being pushed out of a company that I founded. And as I explained to you, and I just want to take a minute to kind of like set this up, because I think that this is a really interesting point and it's something that I struggle with pretty deeply. And that is, I started in 2013 and I, like the sticks I had to rub together, right? And and I was upwardly, upwardly mobile. I was privileged. I, you know, I had a lot of resources to fall back on. I can't, you know, I had a six figure job, whatever. Like I had, a, I had a ton of privilege, but I was trying to break into, not trying to break into it. I was trying to raise awareness around something that was really gatekept, which was the, you know, addiction industry, the recovery industry, how we talk about addiction, And I saw it as paramount for us to break anonymity within recovery spaces, for us to be seen, for us to be able to find each other, for us to normalize the way that we talk about addiction, for us to start to call into question whether we should be drinking alcohol in the first place. There was just like all of these different things that no one was talking about publicly, really. There was so few resources that were on the internet at that time. And I think the playbook back then was, you know, I've written before, like a, one of Kardashian would use, right? Which was like, go on to Instagram, write blog posts. I like, I learned essentially how to market sobriety and how to market this idea around what I saw as a social justice issue. And there's two pieces to this. There's one, you know, what happened when I raised venture capital. But I think the first piece you know, and and who that left out. And I want to talk about that because I think that that's really important in terms of like this idea of like, as we were talking about before we started taping, like this idea of like hyper individualism and catering to that and catering to the needs of the one versus the many and what that does. But for this specifically, I used social media and branding and actually wrote a piece called, you know, like how branding sobriety you know, we'll essentially, I think, like change addiction recovery or something like if we want to end, you know, the addiction epidemic, let's brand recovery. And it was innocent. And it was to me, like, what I thought had to happen, because I thought 
it needs to be reflected back to us by popular culture. And it wasn't at the time. And so what happens is years later, my efforts and many other people's efforts, it did happen, right? Like we did essentially change the narrative around whose stories get to be told. And it also, I was an influencer, right? And I used all the tools an influencer would use. And I think that what I have seen result from that is the commodification of sobriety, right? Like this idea that it's now something you can buy. You can buy your non-alcoholic drinks. You can buy community. You can buy your clothes. <laughs> there's sweatshirts. There's t-shirts. There's mugs. I made some. And, and not only that, what it has done also is it's twofold. One is that a lot more people have access to sobriety because it's not just folks that are necessarily hitting rock bottom. It's like normalized. It's in conversation. There's, there's, you know, dry January has like this huge increase and people are trying sobriety on, but it also has skeletonized it and sold it back to us. as just another thing we need to buy. It's like commercialized it and it's taken this thing that's very subversive, which is rejecting alcohol culture and rejecting this thing that we're supposed to do. And it's turned it into another thing to buy. And so I have really conflicted feelings about this. And I think that I would love for you to talk a bit about like the history of how feminism has always, like this has been happening forever. Like Mm -hmm. at the beginning of like first wave feminism, I believe like during the suffragette movement, Macy's sponsored Macy's like created a part of its department store that sold feminist paraphernalia and sold it back to us. Mm-hmm. And so I think the questions that I have are one, like what is this legacy and why does this like, and what, how white feminism like consistently contributes to that. But two, like what the fuck do we do? Because <laughs> this is, if this is the way that we get messages out Right. And this is like we need to like it is important to see queer, to see black, to see disabled, like the spectrum of our identities reflected back to us in the products we buy and the things that we watch and what we consume. And so like that part, I don't understand like how we how we navigate this. I have several suggestions, <laughs> just honestly, based on research I've done for the book, but also, you know, people I've interviewed in my life. Um, I'm going to address your question in parts. The first one being just in terms of your values being sold back to you. That is a deeply American trajectory and you can trace it across, you know, sobriety politics, clearly feminism, but, you know, many other things. There is a really famous saying that actually my dad says a lot that's like, you know, whatever you value in the United States will eventually be sold back to you. And the type of vigilance that it requires to not only be aware of that, but then like what happens to the thing that you value when it becomes a transaction, I think in terms but of why does that happen? Why does well, that happen? <laughs> um, <laughs> we are a very profit-based uh, country, and within that framework, you know, the constant need to generate trends, right? That's something that I got very close to in media. Um, in that, you know, in in terms of what I cover, there's actually not 
you know, that many things that are new, honestly. And I say this as a journalist, <laughs> like even across, say, like news and politics and culture. Um, I was the executive editor for Vogue.com for a while. I managed, you know, culture and politics, but I also managed like the beauty teams and the fashion teams. And like even across that, you know, like I've managed many beauty teams. I've worked alongside beauty editors. Granted, that's not how I came up. That's not my lane. But I understand a lot about like the strategy of, say, like that type of content. And even if you want to just zero in on that as like a basic example, not that many things are new. Like if you're talking about, say, like skincare, which has become like super du jour in the last three years, if you pull any like dermatologist who's not, you know, getting like a kickback, here's what there is, right? There's genetics, water, diet, sunscreen, sleep. That's actually all there is. <laughs> you can mm -hmm. do other things to like <laughs> manipulate <laughs> sort of the optics of what, you know, you're seeing in the mirror and what other people are seeing. But in terms of like a beauty regimen, right, if that's even something you care about, there's just not that many things. There just isn't. And yet a lot of the churn of, say, like the industry I comes from, that I come from is, you know, knew this, knew that. This has never happened before. This is a revolutionary product. This is a new conversation. This is a brand new, you know, political star. And it's actually not true. Like, I'm a historian at heart. And a lot of things have actually been the same. But again, I think the uh, mechanics of our country in terms of just capitalism broadly, trying to sell people things, trying to create like marketing narratives, a lot of that is anchored in the idea that, you know, this hasn't happened before. And actually, like everything's happened before. It just for the sake of like selling things and having that be the benchmark, a lot of our values or epiphanies or discoveries or hobbies have to be presented to us as yeah. new. Having said that, with feminism specifically, I learned, so when I was in the newsroom and coming up, and I document this in the book, I really had a front row seat to all of this, like, you know, feminist AF, right, like keychains, and like, nevertheless, she persisted, you know, sweatshirts. And at the time, I remember thinking, like, God, this is such a bastardization of, you know, feminist values, like how weirdly fourth wave white feminist <laughs> of all of us. Um, but then I found out, you know, when I was researching my book that much like you just said, Holly, that's not new. That's not a new thing. Yeah. I learned when I was researching white feminism that what, you know, some people call the first wave um, white suffragists in this country. So suffragists who are specifically mobilizing around white women having the right to vote in the United States, they did the exact same thing. Like you just said, they partnered with a number uh, and these are, you know, suffrage organizations partnered with department stores and brands to popularize the politic of white women having the right to vote. And the way that they did that was through, once again, like votes for women flags and like luggage tags and little like ornaments they had as well. And then Macy's was deemed, you know, the official headquarters of suffrage. They got very into window displays on Fifth Avenue. And again, this idea that if you are, say, like feminist identified or women's suffrage is something that you support, you will walk into this store and you will buy this official suffrage outfit to convey that to everybody. I learned through the study of this book and all of the research that I did that that is a very uniquely white feminist practice. Many other feminisms, Black, Chicana, 
through working class movements, fat politics, disability politics, queer and trans movements, you know, this idea that you pay for your politics is like so bizarre, but also just like doesn't fit the framework of what they're advocating for in the first place. A big, I think, cornerstone of white feminism that's important to understand is that that particular ideology and practice has always wanted to ingratiate with power. It's always wanted to ascend in the structure as it is. Many of these other movements that I cite, they're advocating for creating a new structure. And I think that buying your politics, walking into, say, like a conference that identifies as feminist and paying hundreds of dollars to be there, that is one, you know, very limiting and kind of like reductive. But again, under this framework of the United States, feminism has to be reduced to something you buy. It's not, you know, self-empowerment isn't something that rushes in, say, from like challenging power, which is historically how it's been across many cultures and genders. But this is what I think is so, I I think what I'm also thinking about is what we talked about before we started recording, which is this is also hyper-individualistic, which is when you are walking into a Macy's in whatever, 1907, and you're buying like your suffragette outfit or your suffragette you know, luggage tag, you're also making a statement. You're making a fashion statement. You are individually asserting, I think this way. I, you know, and also it is, it's comfort, right? Like it's a very comfortable way for you to demonstrate your politics. It doesn't really cost you much, right? Like maybe, you know, in 2012, if you're wearing a t-shirt that says something that's a little subversive to the office, you might, you know, really be challenging something. But in the end, what I think about is the difference between, like, this is white feminism. It's also basically you're individually styling yourself to make a statement. And it's like, it reminds me of what one of the things I talked about within my book, which is this idea of essentially being sold, like, engineered consent. Like, being sold this idea and this image that you think you're making a choice, basically, based on your own preferences, but you're also making a choice based on this thing that's being essentially sold to you and and engineered for you. When I think of the difference between these two things, I also think of the sacrifice, like across non-white feminist, different types of feminisms. As you said, they're not going out and purchasing their, their feminism. They're also trying to change the system. They're not accessing the system. And I think is also interesting is they're not just thinking about how good I look personally And like, this is like, it's not about standing out and individualism, right? It's about collective. And it's also like the sacrifice, like white feminism is comfortable when I think about it. Because I also, I mean, I I bought those t-shirts. You know, I have a wild thing jumbled it, you know. And so it's, yeah. And so I, what I think about it though, is like, it felt like I was doing something. And I think that, the the thing that gets me is like it was also very comfortable to do. It was not there was not a lot of sacrifice. I wasn't having to give I you know I was I was demonstrating my feminism, but I was also still able to like keep my, you know, like luxury car or whatever the fuck it is, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that white feminism means a lot of us are also still not ready to give up our our creature comforts in order to to opt out fully. Is that like a, an accurate <laughs> statement? Like, I think we so. Still, like, yeah. I quote um, 
a journalist in white feminism who in the second, what some people call the second wave, she went to interview a bunch of like, you know, women's like consciousness raising groups about women's liberation and feminist politics. And she quotes a middle-class woman in like a consciousness raising circle who says point blank, you know, if feminism is me giving up what I have, I'm out. Yeah. And again, this is um, Ellen Willis, who's an incredible journalist and thinker and essayist. She talks about how, quote unquote, feminism, however you're thinking about that across ideologies, is actively being reduced to a self-empowerment strategy and not a collective movement. And she, you know, expresses this anxiety in this essay that I quote that is Um, incredible to read and also, you know, very eerily similar to now. (laughs) It's not, again, a lot of things aren't new. (laughs) Um, I think also in what you're raising, Holly, it's important to think about, and and I thought about this a lot when I was structuring the book and laying it out, is like, if you have the means to buy your feminism, whatever that means to you or in the context of white feminism or outside of it, what does that do to your feminism? How does that limit your feminism? How does that sort of blunt your feminism or your politics if you have to exchange money for it? If you're buying, you know, a sweatshirt to convey your politics, does that replace, say, like forming a union with other employees, right? So that you can all make a decent wage together. Does that replace protesting and like a certain amount of, you know, physical activism that you would want to do? If you buy a mug, are you like, I'm done? I have paid for this. And and therefore, like, (laughs) clearly, I'm a feminist, you know, I don't, I don't need to do any of these other political Mm -hmm. actions. I don't need to challenge authority with other, you know, women or non-binary people. So I thought about that a lot when I was writing in terms of, you know, when you buy things like that on the marketplace, like, what does it do to not only your understanding of of feminism, but also, like, what sort of feminism you, you know, want or subscribe to? Again, it's a feminism is a huge tent. (laughs) There's a lot of different practices and, and strategies and people come at the oppression of being a marginalized gender in wildly different ways. And I it was really important to me in in writing the book to structure it that way. So you could see how so many different people have thought about what oppresses them, but also about how to challenge what oppresses them. I was very intentional with my book in terms of saying like white feminism is an ideology and a practice. (laughs) That's right. Um, Well, it's just like white supremacy. It doesn't mean all white people are white supremacists. Or like all men, you know, if we're talking about misogyny or, you know, like I don't find personally as somebody who has written this book and frankly like studied white feminism on a granular level, I don't find like random insults and like isolation of a singular white woman on Twitter <laughs> um, to be like all that helpful in terms of understanding the scope of what we're talking about when we're talking about white feminism. Well, it doesn't get to the root. It's just, again, a distraction. I, I advise in my book to orient yourself against systems rather than individual people, because I'm not for harassment. I'm not, um, I do believe in consumer activism. You know, if you don't want to buy something because a, you know, particular, say, like, leader or CEO has said something, you know, that doesn't say, like, align with your politics, that is, that is your 
freedom in a capitalist framework to not buy things that, you know, don't align with whatever you want, whether that's like religion or politics or what have you. But I think an important distinction is that, you know, I define a white feminist as somebody who advocates for this very like self-optimized white supremacist imperialistic avenue towards achieving gender equality. Having said that, I intentionally included many women in my book who are white by identification, but who are feminists who happen to be white. They are not white feminists in their practice. And that's very important. I intentionally included um, the work of Anne Braden, who is a really amazing Southern anti-racist activist. Uh, I quote a number of her works in, in the book. She's such a incredible just like thinker and the way that she approached racism and gender inequality, as well as there, there is a legacy that is, um, I'm surprised it hasn't been you know reported more broadly, but there is a really important legacy of anti-racist white women in the South who were not white feminists at all in the way that they approached just the structures of our country, but also power. I also think it's, it's worth getting into, especially, you know, thinking about say like how, white women of a certain class in the United States are sort of conditioned and gendered in in a lot of senses, you know, to present a certain way to perhaps, you know, not be confrontational. And something I really learned in studying Anne Braden and her career of activism, she used to protest, you know, what she believed to be like the wrongful conviction of, say, like black men in the South. And One of the things I find so interesting about her career and that of like many other of the anti-racist white women in the South that I cite is that in a lot of ways, you know, what bothered their immediate Southern communities is the way that as white women, they were not performing gender in the way that they were supposed to. They were supposed to be quiet and dormant and they were supposed to do what the men in their life wanted. They weren't supposed to have a political opinion about anything. They were supposed to look a certain way and stand a certain way and never be seen. And so for a lot of these white women in the South, taking up a political platform, challenging authority, that really offended people's gender sensibility of them. These white women were not performing gender appropriately. And that's what bothered them on top of the anti-racism and, you know, just not right. like and going along. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. And I think that yeah. for, for white women specifically, I think that's an important takeaway is that, you know, when you do challenge these things, especially with other women, especially with other marginalized genders, the fact that you as a white woman are not performing gender in a way that, yeah. you know, capitalism or, you know, broader culture like wants you to, that really bothers people. And, and it does put you yeah. in danger. Um, and I cite that That's in the right. book extensively. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much for that distinction. I think it is it is really important because I, I think that it is like stating it as an ideology versus just like a monolith, right? Of like if you're mm-hmm. if you're a white and a feminist and you're a white feminist. And also I think it was really nice to read that history in your book of white anti-racists from, you know, like the late 1800s and early 1900s. It's like it is. There is like those are stories to be told because I think that there is like as a white person, right? There there's not in the last few years especially there's there isn't a lot of like role models to aspire after. Like you, you know, I I think it's it's a it's a pretty bad legacy. And so I appreciated that. I really did. Well, and I think to your point, Holly, that speaks a lot about, you know, the white people who have been upheld in our culture, you know, who gets profiles written about them, who gets covers, you know, like, 
Elizabeth Holmes and co. <laughs> it's not, you know, Anne Braden, who is challenging structural racism literally on the ground, you know, it, it it's it says a lot about the type of white people who are upheld, white people who make a lot of money, yeah, who are extremely powerful, who again have this very like aspirational lifestyle, like that's who's upheld. And that says a lot about I think like whiteness, you know, like what what we're supposed to aspire to in this country. That's right. Well, and also just like our inability to look away from car wrecks. Um, and the thing that your your work has me thinking about and just our pre-conversation has me thinking about, which is my own liberation. And I think that a lot of times, you know, it's not different than thinking about, you know, like, um, oh God, in James Baldwin, I can't remember which book he says, you, you know, like that he feels sorry for white people in the sense that we do not know are we like, we are the ones that are mm -hmm. suffering. Like the oppressors are the ones that suffer the most because they don't understand the depth of their own sickness and, or like the, you know, the water that they swim in. And I, when I think about like this specifically, what I tend to think about is all the comforts like that I personally won't like where the world is right now and the things that we won't give up and the comforts we won't relinquish for the collective good. And also all of the conflicting messages that we receive, right? And we talked also about like black women or brown women accumulating wealth and that like how important that is, but also like it's a mixed message, right? Like if I'm following uh, a black woman that's telling me that we should all be, you know, like that we should all make a lot of money, right? And that like it's important for us to have the material wealth and that raising the material wealth of those that have never had it is important. You know, how does that line up? And that is important, right? It absolutely is important for us to, you know, like close the, the wage gap or close the wealth gap. But I guess it's just like, it's a, it's so confusing. <laughs> and I think I, <laughs> I would love for you to talk just about like, how do we, like, how do we start to like actually make meaningful and impactful action that isn't just like protecting our own personal interests, like reproductive rights or, or upward mobility or, you know, like a better position at work. And how do, like, because I think that's making us sick. I think that's making, I know it's made me sick in the past. Um, this idea that if I worked harder, if I made a lot of money, or if I had, you know, like I sold a lot of books or whatever, it's just miserable. It's just more misery. And I think more separation. How do we navigate that? Well, I want to, first, I want to ad address the earlier part of what you said, which I think is really important in that, for instance, like being in front of, say, like a black female business owner, right, who wants to build wealth in particularly other women of color. I address this in my book in a lot of pretty granular ways with data and stuff. I think a good place to start with a conversation like that is like, it depends on the lane that you're taking. I don't object to say like people reading, you know, lean in or anything of that genre as like professional development or as like a business book, right? Because that's what they are. White feminism has been very keen at collapsing the lines between like social justice and personal autonomy and wealth. It's something that I've seen across the last hundred years that is very consistent. And so a bunch of say like women of color getting together and talking about their um, white collar careers, the fact that they want to be CEOs. I don't take issue with that on face value. Again, as long as you're not bringing the F word into anything that you're doing, <laughs> because 
while I'm for financial literacy, I mean, I just said earlier on, on the record that, you know, I strategically saved money so that I could quit my job, my high paying job in a way that would not completely devastate me financially. I don't think that me specifically as a, you know, light skinned queer woman of color, like having access to financial literacy and understanding, say, like my retirement account is going to liberate all women. That's where it falls apart. Me being financially literate, and I've advocated for financial literacy and like certain pieces I've done, and especially like women I've mentored. But again, when it takes on a different tenor of like, and this is feminism and will liberate all women, that's not true and that doesn't track and that's the narrative that white feminism perpetuates is like you know individualize yourself grow your own assets again aspiring to white privilege even if you are say like a woman of color i'm very clear about that in my book too i think white feminism as an ideology and a practice can be advocated and supported by anyone because it is about the aspiration to whiteness. It's not about equal rights, people having access to equitable, you know, resources, um, a baseline standard of living. It's, you know, having that privilege of being a white person and just a lot of people having it in terms of, you know, women of color, say like building wealth, I'm not opposed to that necessarily, but again, it, it where I come in is what are you calling that? <laughs> if you're calling it feminism, then you're probably going to hear from me. If you're calling it, you know, again, professional development, if it's um, a very specific, you know, community of women who want to talk about how they want to ascend and, and have power in a very specific system, I don't take issue with that. And again, I think it's important for, you know, people who do subscribe to that to hear in terms of the limitations or collapsing it with, say, like feminism or feminist ideology, is that, the way the system is designed is not everybody can be wealthy. That's what capitalism is. It's a bunch of people on the top who have either ascended or been born into a certain amount of wealth. And then a lot of people underneath who barely make enough money to survive, who are working poor, who don't have health insurance, who can't get you know certain basic things that they need. And that's another place where white feminism fundamentally falls apart is that it's really advocating for this hyper individualized ascension of wealth and autonomy and independence in a system that fundamentally does not work that way. We're not all going to go to Vassar. That's just not the framework. And yet the white feminist mantra is that we should all go to Vassar. <laughs> yeah. And that if, as long as we can go to Vassar, <laughs> we'll, you know, graduate and, you know, make a lot of money. And, you know, that's just like clearly and not live true. The dream. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's what I mean, that's what meritocracy is. It's a, a few right. people. I've been one of them. Right. Who are allowed in the door to make a ton of money. And then that that's where like the whole weird like trickle down feminism sort of thing that like doesn't compute. I, I I often think about my book as like I've done the long division of white feminism and it like does like the math just like doesn't check out where it's like, okay, I'm like, you know, a queer woman of color. If I, you know, say like make a lot of money or I have this very visible position in a corporate world, how does that impact other women? I mean, it, yeah. it it's very nice for me to a certain level. I agree with what you said, Holly, about the tenor of those workspaces and then, you know, the, all of the corporate language and how like strange it is. And then, you know, being under the sort of like production schedule of, you know, constantly like selling or producing something, you know, especially with like relentless hours that I used to work. But um, 
that's what meritocracy is. There can only be, say, people who look like me, right? Like at the top or, you know, very visible or making a ton of money. And then it's just vaguely better for women. And the point of my book is that it's not. If you're like a single mother who works in a call center, white feminism doesn't care about you and doesn't have any structural solutions for what you are facing, you know, to support your family, specifically because you are a marginalized gender, because you live in a, in a country, in a landscape in which priorities have been deemed best and therefore most legitimate for cis men who are white. That's what meritocracy is. It, there will only be a few of us. And I think um, another thing I wanted to mention that I think is pertinent is like, since the book came out, I do a lot of um, speaking engagements on white feminist ideologies and practices, basically assuming that, you know, you've never read the book. You can sit down in, you know, these presentations that I do. I tend to do them at universities and colleges. And I can run you through basically like a summary of my book and like the history of white feminism, how it differs from other movements, and then, you know, how it operates now and how to identify it now. And also like course correctives to, to take if you suspect you're in like white feminist spaces. But um, something I always lead with uh, when sort of like setting the tone for, you know, the people in the audience and trying to get them to understand beyond white feminism, as I have a slide that has like, you know, all the promising data on, say, like women business owners and how like this is pre-COVID, keep in mind, um, how, you know, women business owners have grown, you know, this much percent over a certain amount of time. Um, many of them are black and brown female business owners. And then there's that other stat that's used a lot that's like, you know, over the last, I think it's, we're coming up on four decades now, most college graduates are women. And how when you're wading through like press narratives of, you know, feminism or how, you know, women are doing broadly taking the temperature, that's often the data that you're presented with. The next slide I show is like literally everybody else. I share in the introduction that, you know, Black women have achieved less than a dime of progress in terms of closing the wage gap with cis men. It's only grown nine cents in my lifetime. I just turned 35. So that's it. Um, Latinas are even worse. They only make, uh, they've only had, I think it's a nickel of progress in my lifetime. And then we've seen since the 80s now a 750% increase in women who have been incarcerated in the United States, again, since around the time I was born. And so I think this is important to recognize that, you know, that first slide of data, we're talking about a very specific person. <laughs> the second slide. Exceptional. Yeah, right. exceptional. The top of the top. Yeah. And yet the second slide is, but this is everybody else. This is everybody who that's right. is not on a Vassar track. But we keep on pointing to the exception to say, like, that's what it should be. And it, it denies yes. the whole problem. And I think yeah. what's so what's so fascinating, one of my friends, he did a podcast recently, um, Saudi Simone, and he, he asked, I think he asked all of his um, Instagram people what they did at self-care, and no one responded that they did anything for anyone else. And then he just did this whole podcast as a lecturer around, uh, you know, essentially like how other people care is self-care. But I do think that we're in a really specific time, like wellness, right, is I'm reading like a, a an arc on 
something about wellness and it's like a deep dive into it's it's 4.4 trillion industry it's supposed to be a 7 trillion dollar industry which is again just this idea that work you know working on ourselves will save ourselves and that stuff is really it's adjacent to this whole conversation right which is this idea of like if we make enough money or if we have a you know fewer wrinkles or if we have vitality or whatever it is if we do this stuff you know to ourselves and on ourselves Meanwhile, we're so consumed with perfecting our own, our, our <laughs> perfecting our own storyline, you know, and like, our, and all our neighbors are dying or, you know, like the, you know, or like we're, we're all dying. Right. And I think that that's the thing that keeps the rallying cry that keeps coming back to this is like, we're sold these really shiny ideas of like, you know, like just enough power, just enough money, just enough, whatever, and meanwhile, it's just like we aren't looking at that second slide, right, of like what's actually happening around us while we're distracted by these things. And so I wonder, like, what the fuck do we do? Because I don't see this changing. My Instagram feed is still full of, you know, self-care or self-preservation or whatever the fuck it is. I don't see the shift. How does this change? Well, I want to address the anecdote you shared about self-care because I have a lot of opinions on this, particularly as somebody who, you know, managed teams for a long time and was like trying to prevent burnout or just exhaustion, you know, in, in a lot of climates where, you know, there, there was a lot of like feigned narratives or in some cases, like literal published pieces on like self-care. It says a lot to me that the, you know, let's say like the most mainstream narrative around self-care in the United States is like stuff you can buy, right? Like this, you know, eye pillow, this yoga class. Um, I say this is somebody who's done yoga since I was a kid you know, this particular candle and that it's not say like structural changes <laughs> in our country. <laughs> um, you know, if we worked in, in, in companies that actually respected and encouraged like paid time off, you know, not just vacation days, but like days that you were actively encouraged and not, you know, bullied or shamed into not taking um, sizable parental leave, you know, things like that. Like, these are things, again, structural changes, not products. So I think that's always an important distinction to make when you walk into conversations like this, is that, you know, buying a lot of stuff to quote, unquote, care for yourself doesn't ask once again once much like white feminism does that the structure shift at all to accommodate the fact that you have a human body that gets tired that gets sick that may get covid that may at some point you know carry a child that will get old that will fail and a lot of our work culture whether we're talking like working class up through even you know i would argue the most elite like white collar positions does not recognize on a baseline level that you have a body and bodies fail and bodies are also different and can respond to things in entirely different ways and so that says a lot to me about how this very important topic, once again, kind of like white feminism is being twisted to serve a very particular master, namely like products, selling things, you will feel better. And the thing is like, you might feel better, you know, for like a bit. Um, I use face masks. It's a palliative. It's like, it's yeah, yeah but it's a palliative. <laughs> like it's not getting to the root of why 
you need to go and collapse into a, a tub, you know, or put a yeah, know. or drink, or you know, right. do a number of things that are yeah. really harmful to your body just to like make it through more coffee, like poor, you know, access to food or what have you. Um, in terms of what we can do, I spend the last third of my book outlining specifically for white feminism, what I think can be done. But I think broadly, I've, I've done, you know, a lot of different conversations around, you know, individual versus the collective. And I always try and like reframe that for people, especially people who have subscribed, you know, previously to like a white feminist understanding of social justice. And I, and I think that once again, not fixating on yourself, not centering yourself. What can I as the individual do? History has shown across a lot of different movements and needs that I get into in my book that it is the collective that is important. And again, a piece to start that I think is like a very distinctive with white feminism is that white feminism has often started with, you know, a very particular, say, like, woman in your community, right, who has, and community can be proverbial at this point, I mean, it can be like your Instagram feed, as you just said, um, who has, you know, quote, unquote, made it, what, what, whatever that means, she's ascended classes, she has, you know, made a certain amount of money, she's achieved a certain job, she's moved to this particular house, she has, you know, a very particular partner, she has children if she wants them, and then everybody else in the community aspiring to be like her. That's white feminism. Many of these other movements, right? It's about everybody having access to a certain thing, not mimicking the person who has ascended in the structure. So I think that's important to keep in mind is not necessarily looking at yourself. What can I do differently? How should my, you know, life or my patterns or change? How should this structure change for not just you, but, you know, people who share the same challenges that you have. Um, Something that I've been across a lot in my career in women's media, I've spoken on a lot of panels, and I cannot tell you how many times, you know, at like the 11th hour, you know, it it occurs to them like, oh my God, like, you know, we don't have a trans woman (laughs) on the panel. We, We don't have a Latina. We don't have, you know, an immigrant woman. And it's like, if you started with basic need, again, it's 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 not really that long of a list. Affordable housing, food security, access to clean water, affordable health care, criminal justice reform. All of those issues cut across so many women, across class and, and race and gender identity. Trans women have a much uh, higher rate of, you know, homelessness than, say, you know, many other women. And yet women of color, historically and statistically, do share a bit of those statistics in terms of challenges for finding, like, steady employment. Again, the challenges are somewhat parallel. They're not identical by any means. But Both of those women, you know, whether we're talking about like a trans woman who is homeless or like, you know, a black single mother who's working poor, the reason that they have those circumstances and that they have to navigate their lives in that way is because of the structure of this company that marginalizes both, say, like a white homeless trans woman and like a black single mother. And those are the realities that bind many of us. I mean, that's one of my big critiques of white feminism is that it's so anomalous and it's so elite and yet it's deemed like the default movement. And I, and I still, you know, 
having written a book, I'm still like, how did that happen? <laughs> I know. Well, because again, it's it's also really gendered, right? If you think about like yes. what people typically think of as feminism, they think it's reproductive health or yeah. like, you know, like our wage gap or like these like very specific things that are measured in a binary versus like you don't typically think of clean water, right? Like you don't typically think of like like a living wage as being feminist issues. And I think that that was what was so important, like one of the most important points of your book, which is that when we just say it's reproductive health, or when we just say it's how much money we make or how to lean in or whatever it is, it's ignoring, it's basically talking about the issues that are uh, present within a fraction and not taking into consideration the issues that are, are holding back the majority. And so I think that it is, it, it, it makes sense to me because as far as I have been educated in my life until recently, it's always been feminism is, you know, second wave feminism is Gloria Steinem is reproductive rights is burning our bras is this very, and because again, that Gloria Steinem image, that white, you know, like sympathetic, beautiful woman, like that is what gets most of the press and airtime. And I think when you, when that is what's focused and that's what's essentially like becomes the, the representative ideology that like white women like me are taught, it's really easy to slip into this idea that it's all about Planned Parenthood and how much money we make and how much maternity leave we get versus like extending this to include everyone. And it goes back again to that hyper-individualism. So it, yeah, it doesn't not make sense to me because (laughs) I have, I am not right. Like I'm not a woman of color, you know, and I, you know, I just recently came out and I've always straight past and identified as straight and I, you know, come from, thank you. Um, and (laughs) I come from, you know, a middle-class family and, I've had, you know, my mom's disabled. Like there's certain things that I've had that I've experienced, but for the most part, it has been an education through my own dissatisfaction, right? And my own questioning of like, why is this story that I've been told, why does this not feel right? I've done all the fucking things and still, and I think that I'm not proud to say like, I understand collective more now because the self-centered feminism failed, right? But that is, I think, a lot of my own personal experience. Like my my own understanding of feminism only came when I started investigating addiction, when something specific happened to me that exposed me to, you know, the, the, the greater systems of injustice. And so I think that sometimes that is <laughs> how it, it comes to be. I know what I know and I believe what I believe, only because I, you know, bought into white feminism, I I guess you could say. Well, and I don't, Holly, I don't think you're alone in that by any measure. I think that something that I studied and learned very acutely in executing this book was how not just adept white feminism is as an ideology and practice and and nefarious, but again, if, if you are a person who is awakening to gender biases or patriarchy or like understanding that as a marginalized gender, you're treated in a very specific way. 
white feminism has been very good at like meeting people at that proverbial threshold and indoctrinating them, mm. you know, th this yeah. idea that, you know, feminism, what is that? Right. And like, yes, like I've been, you know, in a, say like a white collar middle-class scenario, like, yes, you know, I found out that like the cis man sitting next to me at work, literally doing the same job is being paid a lot more than me. How did that happen? I'm going to go like read about feminism. And then you turn around and you're like, you know, in this like, swanky flashy you know feminist branded conference <laughs> and you're carrying like a you know a feminist branded tote and like that's not an accident you know and I think I've I've since since the book has been published I've heard from a lot of people like that and again I think it speaks to white feminism's versatility but also the way it's able to just really adapt and and really um, be a part of trends and cultural conversations and I don't think it has to be that way I I think that there are so many incredible thinkers and people who have definitely changed, you know, my consciousness around gender and gender oppression. And it's also just not accurate. You know, white feminists did not invent feminism. Actually, they're like the like last people to show up for feminism. But it's still a lot of people, a lot of white people don't understand that, right? Like it still yes. is, you know, it, it still is Katie Stanton, right? Like it still is like Gloria Stein. I mean, like Betty Friedan, right? Um, I, I think, you know, just to time check here, um, we're, we're close, we're over. Um, but I wanted to just, while we're here, like a couple of things. One, I think Koa has written this beautiful book that is, I, I think a lightning rod. And I also think it's just like a really necessary part of our discourse. I think everyone needs to read it. So, you know, Koa and I were talking before this and Koa is going to tell you to go to a library, which is great. If you cannot afford it, definitely go to a library and access it. But I'm going to also say, if you have the money to purchase it, please purchase it and help support her work. Koa, is there anything that was left out of this conversation that you wanted to add? Um, do you want to plug any upcoming events or... Um, I think I, I would like to plug, if it's all right with you, Barbara Smith's Retirement Fund. Barbara Smith is an incredible thinker, feminist um, activist, anti-racist activist, writer, and editor. She's been very influential to me in my own feminist politics, but also many of the books that she has edited and written are incredible archives and could not have existed, frankly, without her. Um, she is the co-founder of Kitchen Table Women of Color Press, which I get into in my book and I cite. And I cannot speak highly enough of how important these texts are and the fact that she put so much of her own time aside with other women to make sure that there are records of Black lesbians writing about their experience, about Latinas, about immigrants, women. Again, I have learned as a historian that when people do not write things down or when they don't have the capacity or resources to write things down, we all lose out. I relied heavily on my book, uh, in doing my book, to have access to what women and non-binary people have written long before I was around. And I really do credit Barbara Smith with creating that legacy for somebody like me. Because she has done this work, she is now in her 70s and does not have a traditional retirement fund. And so I've made sure when White Feminism published, I donated a piece of my um, advance to the Smith Caring Circle 
which is a crowdsourced retirement plan for Barbara Smith, who again is this incredible activist and organizer. And so if you would like to really show your respect to a a feminist of color who has literally made it possible for somebody like me to publish a book called White Feminism with a publisher like Simon & Schuster, I strongly Mm. urge you to donate to Barbara's retirement fund. Thanks, Koa. Thank you so like this was just such a great conversation and I'm so I feel so fortunate to have it because I've had so many questions for you since reading your book. <laughs> so thank you for your work. Um thank you for your work, truly. Thank you so much and thank you so much for the invitation. You've been listening to Quitted, a podcast about quitting, hosted by Holly Whitaker and Emily McDowell. Our music is by Michael Blumenfeld. Our sound engineer is Adam Day, and our producer is Kathleen Kissich. Quitted is made possible by us and by our listeners. To support the show, join our patron community at patreon.com forward slash quitted.